Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump indicted again less than an hour ago. This time it's from the grand jury probing his actions after the 2020 election. We'll tell you what we know. The Biden administration is banning incandescent light bulbs. Soon LED bulbs will be among the only kinds you can legally buy. Two U.S. financial powerhouses allegedly facilitating investments to blacklisted Chinese companies. A House committee is cracking down, the chairman seeking divestment from China. COVID vaccine mandates in colleges and universities. A report now shows that over 100 such institutions are still enforcing mandates three years after the pandemic started. The Gilgo Beach serial killing suspect appears in court and newly released photos show the inside of his Long Island home. Former President Trump indicted again. Joining us live now is NTD's Iris Tao from outside the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. Iris, tell us what happened. Hey, good evening, Steph. You're right. Former President Trump has just been indicted on a third set of felony charges this afternoon. And this latest indictment here is about Trump's alleged involvement in a January 6th incident in the Capitol, of course, which happened while his supporters were protesting the 2020 election results. And according to the latest indictment, Trump is now facing four charges, including conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to impede the January 6th congressional proceedings, conspiracy against the right to vote and have to vote, have the vote counted, and also attempt to obstruct, impede the certification of the electoral vote. And of course, Trump has also been summoned to appear at this federal court right behind me here at 4 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday for his arraignment. And a quick recap of what just happened this afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern time, the grand jury at this federal courthouse handed over the indictment to the judge. And actually, shortly right before that at 4.45 p.m. Eastern time, Trump predicted that on social media, posting, quote, I hear that deranged Jack Smith in order to interfere with the president election of 2024, we'll be putting out yet another fake indictment of your favorite president, me, at 5 p.m. And Trump's also alleging election interference by asking, quote, why didn't they do this two and a half years ago? Why did they do it? Why did they wait so long? Because they wanted to put it right in the middle of my campaign. And shortly after the indictment, Trump's campaign also responded by putting out a statement saying, quote, the lawlessness of these persecutions of former President Trump and his supporters is reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 1930s, the former Soviet Union and other authoritarian dictatorial regimes. And that's Trump's campaign statement. And it remains to be seen how this latest indictment here will impact the 2024 presidential election. We know that on Monday, a new report shows that Trump's previous two indictments have both boosted his financial gains, his campaign gains during his online fundraising efforts. And also a new poll released on Monday shows that Trump still holds a wide lead over his GOP contenders despite his legal challenges facing him. And of course, in that same poll, it also shows that 7 in 10 Republican voters still stand behind Trump, saying that he has not committed any serious crimes. So all eyes are now on Thursday when Trump is expected to come here to this federal courthouse. And of course, it needs to be seen how this new indictment is going to stir up Washington. Steph. Thanks so much for that update, Iris.
Next, the Biden administration is banning popular kinds of light bulbs. Starting today, manufacturers and retailers that sell incandescent and halogen light bulbs will face federal fines. The administration is instead pushing LED bulbs. The Energy Department says other kinds of bulbs waste too much energy. Although the ban still allows for less efficient bulbs in specialty lights like black lights, bug lights and floodlights. To be clear, you don't have to throw any bulbs away. You just won't be able to buy new incandescents. The federal agency says the bulb switch will save consumers around $3 billion per year on energy bills and cut carbon emissions. But the Residential Energy Consumption Survey says fewer than half of households reported using mostly or exclusively LED bulbs. More higher income households used LEDs compared to those of lower income. The Energy Department has reversed a Trump-era rule protecting incandescent bulbs and consumer choice of lighting options. Consumer groups have also said the perceived climate benefits are, quote, speculative, assumption-driven, and prone to bias in the hands of agencies with a regulatory agenda. And strategically decoupling from the Chinese Communist Party. That's what some China hawks in Congress aim to do, and it appears that they've taken the first steps. The House Select Committee on China is cracking down on U.S. investments to CCP-run companies. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports. In the first solid action taken by the House's Select Committee on China, members are investigating two firms, BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset manager, and MSCI. It's a bipartisan effort, and the Republican chairman, along with the top Democrat on the committee, are saying that BlackRock has invested more than $429 million in Chinese companies that have been blacklisted by the government over either national security or human rights issues. As a country, we have to have a national policy on outbound investment. We also have to look at what are, why do we make it so favorable to invest in China still? And when I recently asked Chairman Gallagher about strategically decoupling from China, he said that the economic aspect will be the hardest piece of the puzzle. We have to figure out a way to reclaim our economic independence, to stop funding our own destruction, and to take the golden blindfolds off when it comes to the risks of doing business with Beijing. The chairman is now introducing a bill to force tax exempt entities such as nonprofits, universities or public pension plans to divest from China, otherwise lose their tax exempt status. Gallagher saying that these nonprofits must choose. Are they committed to their professed values or to financing a genocidal communist regime? Do you think this is a step in the right direction? Absolutely. I think that uh, it's and, and it shouldn't go only to nonprofits and higher education institutions. And the Senate has taken action on Chinese investments, too, recently passing a bill that would require U.S. firms to notify the Treasury if they're investing in Chinese tech companies. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with the head of corporate governance at Strive Asset Management, Justin Danhoff, for his analysis. Justin, thanks so much for coming on. The House Select Committee on China says that BlackRock is sending money to Chinese companies that, quote, pose national security risk. Can you expand on exactly what are the concerns here? Yeah, so first of all, you know, a lot of kudos to the House Select Committee on China. They did some really good research um, and they published a letter to BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink, noting that 
using other people's money, they have about $430 million invested in PRC military companies. That are companies that are advancing technologies that could be used to wage war against Taiwan, for instance. Um, we know that they are being very aggressive in that part of the region in the South China Sea. So again, kudos to the House Select Committee for digging in, doing the research, and asking the right questions. Why is BlackRock sending other people's money to advance companies that are supporting the PRC military? Yes, it's a very fair question. And as far as you know, how widespread is this type of investment in questionable Chinese firms in the investment industry? Oh, it's, it's rife throughout Wall Street, right? I think that there was a blind eye that was turned to this issue for a very long time. And I'm glad to see that both sides on Capitol Hill, this is a bipartisan issue. The letters that were issued to both BlackRock and MSCI, they were bipartisan letters seeking to get answers about why firms on Wall Street are advancing the interests of the CCP, not the investment account of everyday Americans. So can investment firms justify sending money to these Chinese firms by saying that they're looking for better profit, do you think? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there's also humanitarian issues that we've got here. We've got slave labor concerns in the Xinjiang province. This was also identified in the letters that they are supporting companies that have been put on lists by, again, bipartisan folks on both sides of Capitol Hill have put together lists of corporations that they deem unacceptable because they are, you know, violating human rights and they are advancing the CCP's military aggression. And the Chinese embassy responded to this saying that the lawmakers are politicizing economic and investment issues. What do you have to say to that? Again, it's, it's very hard for them to say that with a straight face when on, you know, Capitol Hill, you can't get the left and right to agree on any issue, right? They couldn't agree on what to have for lunch. But they both agree this is a bipartisan issue that American dollars, and a lot of these are retirement dollars, by the way, should not be funneled to CCP-linked companies that are advancing the PRC military. So I would say it's a laughable response. But I would say that I'm glad politicians are paying attention to this issue because Wall Street has been in bed with the CCP for a very long time. And this is a divorce that's long overdue. At Strive, we, has, we have always maintained that we will never do business in mainland China because it's not what's best for investors. You know, Larry Fink likes to say that climate risk is investment risk. Well, at Strive, we know that China risk is real investment risk. Now, BlackRock manages $9 trillion worth of assets, including millions of Americans' retirement savings, as you mentioned. For these investors, what can they do? Yeah, I, I think they need to get on the get on the horn and see where their money is. I think that what's happened with the democratization of Wall Street, that is where Wall Street has gone passive and allowed more people to have broader exposure to the market, that has shown that in, investors are very often less in tune with where their money is going. So I think that there's a lot of education that needs to be done. You know, at strive.com, you can come. We have five questions that you can ask your financial advisor, and you will know, based on the responses of those five questions, if your money is being weaponized in the capital markets or if it's being used to advance your fiduciary interests. 
Great to know. Thank you so much. Justin Danhoff, great to speak with you. Thank you so much. New Jersey Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver is dead at age 71, according to a statement from her family. It calls her a cherished daughter, sister, and aunt, as well as a distinguished public servant. Oliver's biography says she was the first woman of color to serve in a statewide elected office in New Jersey. The cause of her death is unknown. Governor Phil Murphy's office has said Oliver was receiving medical care for an unnamed reason. Murphy says he and his family are saddened and distraught over Oliver's death. And a report shows over 100 colleges in the U.S. are still enforcing COVID vaccine mandates. That's more than three years after the pandemic first started. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. An organization called No College Mandates recently posted this list, saying over 104 colleges in the U.S. are still mandating COVID vaccines for students. Among those institutions are Harvard, Rutgers, John Hopkins and more. Back in May, the WHO and the CDC both said COVID-19 isn't a public health emergency anymore. No College Mandates describes itself as a group of concerned parents, doctors, nurses, professors and more. I spoke with Dr. Clayton Baker, a medical expert with the organization. Does it make sense to still have these mandates from a medical standpoint? No, it makes no sense whatsoever. We knew as early as mid to late 2020 that the uh, death rate and serious injury rate for young, healthy people was vanishingly small with COVID. So it really never made sense. What's more, Dr. Baker tells me there are certain risks tied to young adults taking the COVID vaccine. He says studies show there's an increased risk of myocarditis after getting a COVID mRNA vaccine, especially for young men. And cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough previously testified on the issue under oath. He said over 200 peer-reviewed studies show cardiovascular syndromes are directly attributable to COVID-19 vaccination. What's more dangerous at this point, actually having a vaccine mandate or not having a mandate, which means there could be unvaccinated students probably getting COVID or possibly getting COVID? Put it this way, the risk-benefit analysis for mandating vaccines and college students is absolutely to the negative. The benefit is negligible if it even exists and the um, potential harms are death of student. Almost 4,000 colleges across the U.S. have already let go of vaccine mandates or never required a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Baker says the 100 still left should follow suit. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. The Gilgo Beach serial killing suspect was in court today for his pre-trial hearing. Meanwhile, newly released photos show the inside of his Long Island home following a law enforcement search. The images show boxes piled up, some with yellow tape labeled evidence. In one photo, it appears a section of a bathtub was cut out. Rex Huerman was arrested and charged with murder last month. Authorities have charged the 59-year-old with killing three women on Long Island's Gilgo Beach in 2010. He's also the main suspect in the death of a fourth woman in that area, but hasn't been charged in that case yet. The pictures were provided by the attorney of Huerman's wife. She has since filed for divorce. She and her attorney say she had no idea about her husband's alleged actions. And coming up, questions and concerns rising over the secret Chinese-linked biotech lab discovered in a California warehouse. What were the infectious agents and thousand mice doing there? And how many more of these labs are there? 
and Europeans are preparing to evacuate from Niger. Fears are rising over the recent military coup in the West African country. And another drone strike hits Moscow. Russia calls it a terrorist attack and blames Ukrainian forces. These stories and more after the break. Alarm now rising about the Chinese biolab discovered in a California warehouse. China Huck Gordon Chang asking on Twitter whether China is planning to launch biological warfare against America from American soil. And how many more locations like this are there? As previously reported, officials found the secret biotech lab after months of investigation. The lab was operated by Chinese medical company Prestige Biotech and contained at least 20 potentially infectious agents, including the CCP virus, HIV, hepatitis, herpes, E. coli, and malaria, as well as 1,000 white lab mice, 200 of which were dead. A spokesman for Prestige Biotech reportedly told the San Joaquin Valley Sun that the mice were genetically engineered to catch and carry the COVID-19 virus. And earlier today, I spoke with Gordon Chang about this discovery for further analysis. He's the author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War, and his writings can also be found at gordonchang.com. Gordon, thanks so much for joining us. The unlicensed lab with reported ties to China was actually discovered by chance. And as you pointed out in a tweet, there could be others like it that we haven't found. What's your reaction to its discovery? This has been called mysterious, but we know enough and we have to be extremely concerned. You know, this lab was supposed to be making COVID-19 and pregnancy tests, but they found a lot of things in the lab that are inconsistent with that explanation including at least 20 agents for various diseases. And also there were about a thousand white lab mice there that were genetically engineered to carry pathogens. So we have to assume that this was a biological weapons facility in the United States, probably was gonna spread disease in the months before uh, the Chinese planned to launch a war in Asia. And there are undoubtedly other facilities like this in the US. That's our assumptions that we need to work under. Now, we don't have a lot of information on the lab, but we do know that Reedley is just 40 miles from Naval Air Station Lemoore. So location of this lab is a further cause for concern, would you say? Yes, and it's also close to Fresno, which is a population center. And I think that the purpose of the lab was maybe not so much infecting personnel at a military installation, but just a general biological weapons attack on the American people. So um, that, to me, is the critical thing. Um, the fact that there's a military base there is just like a bonus in the view of the Chinese military. All right, so considering the ongoing debate about COVID origins and the, the threat of biological warfare from the Chinese communist regime, that could even be happening on our own soil. It's certainly on, on our own soil. Mm. Um, and I, and I think this is part of uh, China's plan to weaken the United States. We, with regard to COVID-19, I think it was genetically engineered, maybe 98, 99% probability of that. But Steph, 
there's something that's 100% certain, and that is that once this disease got out into the Chinese population, Xi Jinping decided to spread it beyond China's borders. You know, in critical times in December 2019 and January 2020, they lied about transmissibility. They told the world it was not contagious when they knew that it was. And while they were locking down their own country, they were pressuring others, especially the U.S., to take arrivals from China without restrictions. You put those two things together, and the only conclusion is they wanted to spread this disease. Now we find this facility in Reedley. They want to spread another disease. And so how should the U.S. defend itself this time, how do you think? Well, first of all, uh, we send the people at that lab not into the federal or state court system, but we send them to Guantanamo. This is an act of war. And until we can sort things out, I think that they need to stay there indefinitely. But of course, we need to start looking at other Chinese-owned facilities in the United States. And, and this is not racial. It's just because no Chinese entity, no Chinese individual can resist the demand from the Communist Party, which has made it clear that the United States is an enemy. We need to fight back. The Chinese think they're at war. We think that we're at peace. We're just oblivious right now. Stark warning there. Thank you so much, Gordon Chang. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Steph. European nations are planning to evacuate their citizens from Niger. This is days after the military officers seized power in the West African nation. The French foreign minister said Tuesday, France plans to evacuate hundreds of French and European citizens from Niger over the next 24 hours. She said France spoke with authorities in Niger to make sure the evacuation could proceed safely. We estimate that a few hundred French people want to leave and have clearly expressed this intention. A few hundred Europeans, too. It comes a day after Niger's neighbors, Mali and Burkina Faso, said that any outside intervention to restore the ousted Niger government would be seen as a declaration of war. With the risk of conflict escalating, Spain said it was preparing to evacuate more than 70 citizens by air, and Italy also said it would organize a repatriation flight. Germany urged its citizens to join the French flights. The European Commission said the EU is not planning to formally evacuate its staff from Niger. And of course we are following the situation. This means that the decision will be uh, kept constantly under review. Niger's borders have been closed to commercial flights since military officers ousted President Mohamed Vassoum last Wednesday. The coup has sent shockwaves across the Sahel region. It has also raised security fears, as groups linked to ISIS and al-Qaeda have been gaining ground in the area for years. This could create a much larger vacuum of free movement for these armed groups to move further south into and also have more area for them to freely stage, recuperate, recruit. Supporters of the junta burned French flags and attacked the French embassy in Niger's capital on Sunday, prompting police to fire tear gas in response. The coup in Niger was the seventh military takeover in less than three years in West and Central Africa. And now zooming in on the war in Ukraine, Russia reports another round of drone attacks by Ukraine earlier today. One of the drones crashed into a high-rise building. Russian officials said a fresh Ukrainian terrorist drone attack hit Moscow on Tuesday. Russia's defense ministry said that its forces downed two drones in suburbs west of the city center and that the military's anti-aircraft fire caused a third drone to crash out of control into a building at a business complex. It was the same building that was hit during another drone strike on Sunday. 
These witnesses were near the building when it was hit. We were going to see the tower where the explosion happened the day before yesterday, and people showed us where it happened. We were walking there, and then suddenly there was this explosion, and we immediately ran. There were shards of glass and then smoke rising. Then the security services started running that way. The shards were really big. Officials said no injuries were reported. Russian media said debris from the falling drone would be sent for analysis. The drone attack comes after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky denounced Russia on Monday night after more deadly strikes on his country. In his nightly video address, Zelensky said Russian missile strikes on his hometown in the south killed a 10-year-old girl and her mother, among at least six people. He said it was an act of terrorism and called on allies to support Ukraine with long-range weapons. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And in Burma, a jailed leader has been pardoned partially. This takes six years off the total sentence for the former leader of Burma, also known as Myanmar. Here's more. Myanmar's former leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has received a partial pardon from the country's ruling military junta. According to state media reports, five of her 19 convictions have been overturned, reducing her 33-year prison sentence by six years. The 78-year-old denies all charges against her and has been appealing against them. These range from incitement and election fraud to corruption. One diplomatic source described the pardons as a cosmetic move. But a junta spokesperson said it was part of a countrywide amnesty involving freeing more than 7,000 prisoners. The Nobel laureate has been in detention since she was ousted in a coup in early 2021. Just last week, Suu Kyi was moved from prison to house arrest. The military junta also partially pardoned former President Win Mint, who was arrested at the same time. Both Suu Kyi and Win Mint are to remain under house arrest, according to an informed source. Coming up, California's largest wildfire of the season rages on in the Mojave National Preserve. Firefighters are struggling with containment as the flames create fire worlds. And people are fleeing Miami. It's experiencing its first population drop since the 1970s. We find out what's causing the exodus when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump has been indicted for a third time. The federal grand jury convened by special counsel Jack Smith is accusing him of conspiring to obstruct votes and the certification of the 2020 election. The Biden administration's ban on popular incandescent light bulbs goes into effect. The push for energy efficiency standards is facing opposition from Republicans. The House Select Committee on China launches an investigation into investment firm BlackRock. Lawmakers say the company helped finance Chinese companies blacklisted over national security and human rights issues. European nations preparing charter flights to evacuate their citizens from Niger. France says it will fly hundreds of French and other Europeans out of the West African nation. 
As we reported on at the top of the show, former President Trump has been indicted on a third set of felony charges relating to the events of January 6, 2021. Here's Special Counsel Jack Smith making the announcement. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. In the meantime, I must emphasize that the indictment is only an allegation and that the defendant must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. This is the second indictment arising from Smith's investigation. The former president is separately facing 40 counts relating to the alleged retention of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The Trump campaign responded to the new indictment, describing it as a politically motivated attack. And California's largest wildfire is sending whirling flames into the sky as the blaze continues scorching the Mojave National Preserve. Smoke from the flames blotted out the sun across Las Vegas as the wildfire spread into Nevada. The York Fire in the Mojave National Preserve has burned over 80,000 acres, making it the largest wildfire of the season in California. It is about 23% contained as of Tuesday. The blaze erupted Friday near the remote Caruthers Canyon area, crossed the state line into Nevada on Sunday, and sent smoke further east into the Las Vegas Valley. By midday Monday, a smoky haze on the Las Vegas Strip obliterated views of mountains surrounding the city and suburbs. Because of low visibility, the Las Vegas airport reported departure delays of nearly two hours. Firefighters battled fire whirls, or fire tornadoes, on Monday in their struggle to get the flames under control. The cause of the York Fire remains under investigation, though authorities say it started on private land within the preserve. Other details were not available. To the southwest, the Bonnie Fire burned about 2,300 acres in the rugged hills of Riverside County. The blaze was about 40% contained on Tuesday morning. More than 1,300 people were ordered to evacuate their homes Saturday near the community of Aguanga that is home to horse ranches and wineries. However, the fire didn't grow on Monday, and some were allowed back home. One firefighter was injured in the blaze. And staying in California, street vendors getting attacked while trying to make a living. That's why Silicon Valley leaders are informing local vendors on how to safely and properly conduct business. NTD's David Lamb reports. It's saddening to see violence, and that's the case with local street vendors, with a recent incident of an ice cream man getting robbed multiple times, as seen in the Citizen app. 
In response to reports of violence, San Jose city leaders held a workshop to help them achieve economic success and job safety. We want to make sure that everyone in our city has economic opportunity. We also have a responsibility for ensuring the public safety. We have rules for a reason. We make sure that people follow health codes through our partners at the county. We need to maintain our public right-of-way, ensure people can safely navigate our downtown. But at the same time, I want to see our vendors be able to earn an honest living there. The California Street Vendors Initiative claims that the state retail food code is outdated and no longer relevant to street food vendors. Local services joined the Silicon Valley workshop to try and help. So our role is to help them th to figure out what they're going to trigger and then shepherd them through those processes to get their businesses open as quickly as possible. So if you're opening a business and you don't know where to go, come talk to us and we'll help you figure it out, help you navigate. We talk to a lot of people that are you know, suffering from wage theft. Um, that might not be uh, documented, but that's, I think that's the big issue right there where uh, even if you're undocumented, you have, um, you have rights. One specialist said her organization created special loans to fit the needs of vendors. We're able to approve loans without needing great income, proof of income, two years tax returns. Uh, we're willing to work, um, every, work with every individual to better serve the community, yes. For us, it gives me hope that we're, and, and I feel grateful for a team that is giving people the tools in order to become more, more self-sufficient and, and to determine what their futures are going to be like. In San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. And people are leaving Miami. Things there have become so expensive that almost 80,000 residents have packed their bags and left. It's the first population drop in decades. What's going on in Florida? Let's find out. Almost 80,000 people left Miami between 2020 and 2022. This is the city's first population drop in decades since at least the 1970s. Miami-Dade really has become the epicenter of inflated costs. Uh, the current inflation rate in Miami-Dade is 9%. That's more than double the national average. John Boyd helps businesses find the best places to build their offices and factories. He's currently helping many businesses set up locations in Florida. Boyd says rent and home prices in Miami are much higher than national averages because enormous amounts of money are flooding in. Miami really is front and central of a state that's really become a global powerhouse, okay, in terms of in-migration of people, companies, and wealth. From around the globe. People are also pushed away by property insurance that's almost triple the national average. Problems related to population growth, such as infrastructure that has to keep up with congestion, major amounts of traffic, all causing people to leave. To me, this is a normal market with a normal amount of vacancy. And, you know, we, you can't be in a growth market forever. Broker Peter Gray sees the real estate availability in Miami going way up. In the past, properties would take two months to sell. Now they take six months. But even though Miami is losing people, Florida as a whole has grown more than every other state in the country. It currently has a population of 22 million. Faye Quarter, NTD News. The latest study from the National Institute on Retirement Security shows that Generation X is facing a grim retirement outlook. The report defines Gen X as those born between 1965 and 1980. As of December 2020, Gen X represented almost 64 million Americans, or nearly 20% of the population. 
For more on this topic, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with a wealth advisor. Uh, so the latest report from the National Institute on Retirement Security is uh, it shows that Gen X is facing a dismal retirement outlook. I found that um, the bottom half of earners have only a few thousand dollars saved for retirement. Uh, so we're talking about people between 41 and 56. So my question to you is, uh, let's just take the middle number here. Uh, if you're 48 years old, is it too late to start saving aggressively for retirement? So Don, I'm, I'm right in this Gen X uh, phase here and I'm exactly that number, I'm 48. So, you know, it, it's a challenge, right? The, the benefit is starting early. So the earlier you get started, the better. But I think the bottom line is for those that might find themselves behind the eight ball, so to speak, uh, it is time for them to figure out their way and figure out a way to start putting more towards their retirement. Because I think what we're seeing now is really a result of many of the changes that have taken place over the last couple of decades, as far as the shift from defined you know, benefit plans to now defined contribution plans where we're gonna be responsible for our own retirement. So if, if you're not there yet and you're not above the median and you're well below, it's time to really get started in a big way. Okay, so here's another question. Whatever your salary is now, is it realistic to assume that you only need half of it when you retire? Uh, you, you know, that means whatever your living standard is now, you're gonna to have to reduce that by half. What do you think? I, I don't know that that's a realistic expectation. Many a times the families that we're working with, uh, we look at things on the other side of the equation because the salary, you know, the income in a household, it may be a single, it may be a joint. More importantly, you want to look at the expenses. What are the expenses looking like for the family? And many times we're seeing instances where uh, the need is closer to 80% of what their current expenses are, are going to continue into retirement. And in some areas of the country where living expenses may be higher, it's closer to 90 to 100%. A lot of folks who are in the higher living expenses area where you know it's a higher cost of living, they may not see a significant drop off in retirement assuming they keep their situation status quo. So we typically look at that 80% number at a minimum. I think 50% you're shooting on the low side. How many percent should you be putting aside from your salary uh, for retirement as, as a rule of thumb? as much as you can so i mean you know that really that it comes down to as much as you possibly can obviously when you're younger you have the ability to potentially put in less because you have the time value of money working on your side and having that grow through compound interest i think that the number that you're looking at and we, we talk to folks all the time about that 10 percent magic number if you could save 10 percent of your earnings every year uh, especially as a young person, that should put you in a pretty good position over the long haul. Now, depending on how much you have saved at this point and how old you are, you may need to look to you know increase that number in that percentage because if you're sitting around and you're 48, 49, you know, 50 years old and you are below that median and you're at the lower end, you know, and your expenses are relatively high, you may have to put in significantly more than that 10% number to get you back on track. All right, thank you so much, Lawrence, today for your insight. Thanks, Don, appreciate it. A new study ranked the best and worst states to retire, and some of the results may surprise you. 
Bankrate looked at five categories across all 50 states, affordability, overall well-being, the cost and quality of health care, weather, and crime. Last year, Florida ranked number one. But the state that came out on top for 2023 was Iowa. The Hawkeye State was named best place to retire due to its lower cost of living, affordable but high quality health care, and low crime. The other states that round out the top five places to retire are Delaware, West Virginia, Missouri, and Mississippi. Florida dropped to eighth. Experts say older Americans shouldn't rule out places that aren't traditionally top of mind for retirement. As for the worst states for retiring, the bottom five are all in the Northeast and West, primarily because of the cost of living. Massachusetts, Washington State, California, New York, and Alaska. And coming up in baseball, another blockbuster trade as the Mets trade another star. How will Justin Verlander fare in his new team? And is this zoo creature a human in a costume or just a funny looking bear? Hear what, why people are scratching their heads and what the zoo has to say about it when we return. For your sports news, joining us now is NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, baseball's trade deadline was today. Were any big names moved? Yeah, just two days after they traded away Max Scherzer and said they weren't having a fire sale, the New York Mets traded Justin Verlander back to Houston where he spent the last five and a half seasons. Now Verlander is a lot like Scherzer, future Hall of Famer. He's won three Cy Young Awards. And he makes $43 million a year. I'll be very interested, though, to see how much cash the Mets had to send to Houston to get these two top prospects that they got from them. Now, meanwhile, for Verlander, though, I think he gets what he wants, you know, going to a playoff contending squad now. All right. Now, you've mentioned before that the biggest move is whatever happens with Shohei Otani, who didn't get moved. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I didn't like it. I thought it was a little bit way too risky for them because, you know, if he leaves in free agency, they don't get anything for him. But I like what they did once they decided they were keeping him. They doubled down. They traded for some pitching and some hitting. They traded some minor league players away. And now they got hot. Uh, they're just three games out of a playoff spot. It'll definitely be worth it if they either you know, win the World Series or they re-sign Shohei Otani this fall. So we'll have to see what happens. Now shifting gears to golf, what's the significance of Tiger Woods being added to the PGA board? Yeah, this seemed to be all about the players wanting representation. 41 players from the PGA sent a letter to the PGA wanting more say in future matters. And they've got it now with Tiger Woods, I think, on the board. Woods is not only the best player in PGA history, he's very well respected. And I say that especially because he turned down a reported seven to $800 million to join Live Golf. Uh, so I think a lot of the players just feel that they can trust this guy uh, after what he did there. Moving on to the World Cup news, the U.S. women's team moved on to the next round. But can you tell us about this controversy surrounding that? Yeah, former player Carly Lloyd, she's now a commentator for Fox Sports. She was not impressed by their draw last night against Portugal. You know, she said they lacked passion. 
To be honest, I think that was kind of the consensus though. There's, uh, this is a U.S. squad that is ranked number one in the world. Nobody thought this was a very tough group. And yet in their three matches, they came out with one win and two draws. So I think people were kind of generally unimpressed. So what's your take on all this? Well, I think it's hard to disagree with Lloyd. However, I will say, I think they're having trouble with these high expectations. They won the last two World Cups. The one they won four years ago was very dominant. But this isn't the same team. Carly Lloyd is no longer gone. Some of their star players are getting a little bit older. This is a team that's more in transition. They're still very good. I think it'll be very interesting their ne next match out. I believe it's August 6th against Sweden to see how they respond to Lloyd's criticism. Dave Martin, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Steph. And finally, a real animal or a human in costume. The authenticity of a bear in a Chinese zoo has sparked debate on social media. The video, posted last Friday, showed a sun bear standing on its legs inside an enclosure as visitors looked on. It was at a zoo in eastern China. People online questioned if the bear was a man dressed in a costume due to its human-like stance and the folds of loose skin on its back. Zoo officials have reassured visitors that the bears are not staff in disguise. Sun bears are the world's smallest bear species. They have thinner limbs than other bears since they're from a tropical climate and are occasionally spotted standing upright. In a statement, the zoo says people just don't understand their behavior. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.